Hello, it's Anna Perro and Sophie Little here. We run Soundyard and we are the producers of Chris Skinner's Countryside Podcast. We're excited to tell you we've been nominated for an award. It's a public vote, so if you'd like to vote for us, well, that would just be amazing. You can head to norfolkartsawards.org. Look out for Soundyard. We're under the Broadcast and Media Award. And it's such a pleasure putting the show together and listening with you. So let's join Chris and Matthew on High Ash Farm. Chris Skinner's Countryside Podcast with Matthew Gudgeon. March. I can't believe it. Oh, we've survived another winter, yes. <laughs> although it still feels a, a little nip in the air, but it's, a, it's more of a spring-like morning this morning. I've come to see Chris Skinner at High Ash Farm. It's the Countryside podcast and the daffodils are out and we've seen other blooms as well. My yes. goodness me. I know spring is actually springing. Welcome to High Ash Farm, Matthew, and welcome to a new season as well. And we'll be spoilt for choice for the next few podcasts because it all happens so quickly. And uh, not only that, but there's a big pine copse on the other side of this little road and the rooks are nesting in there and I was sitting here really early this morning watching them bringing sticks in. Here comes a couple now and they're just going to land in. Two more now coming in and another one and usually they're bringing sticks in to their nest building from quite a distance. I just love watching them and uh, it sort of kind of paints a picture of our countryside with the rooks building in the trees quite close to Casus and Edmund Parish Church and uh, it's just one of those lovely sounds of them calling away and I can hear them in the background and they're flying off in every which direction and one going to come right over the top of us now uh, just looking for the right stick you know how fussy the ladies are it's got to be just right (laughs) (laughs) anyway I said we're spoilt for spring flowers and All the animals and mammals are quite visible at this time of the year because the new growth hasn't really started yet. It's still all dying down. There's a general impression of brown still out in the countryside, but these are hay fields beside us, pollen and nectar field here, and that's just getting green. Um, And like we learned last week, you have to kind of use your eyes a little bit. It's lovely walking through the countryside if you've got a friend with you, chatting away, but you you miss so much. But if you're the friend, we don't. (laughs) That's right. Well, just look here. You don't have to look very far. We've just come into one of the entrances of the permissive walks. Where are we looking? Oh, look, violets. Now, about two or three podcasts ago... We looked at one of the earliest flowering violets. It was a sweet violet, Viola odorata. And and this one is a little bit paler in colour and it forms really large clumps and it's in full flower at the moment. I'm going to go down on my knees. It's very deep, rich purple. It is. um, It's a gorgeous colour. Uh, very, I mean, you can walk past this, and lots of people do every 
every day without noticing it and it's one of those delights so these sort of round shaped leaves slightly different leaf shape to the sweet violet it's called the dog violet and it's rather a derogatory term because what it means is it doesn't actually have a perfume you remember i explained about the sweet violet it's one of the most aromatic of all our british uk wildflowers and this one if i did pick one and sniffed it there's just nothing there but it, it nevertheless it does have insects to pollinate it and uh, it's like many of the violet species including wild pansies as well and one grows out on the light land on the farm called Heartsease and there's also an estate on the north side of Norwich called the Heartsease estate. Very light sandy soil there and there used to be masses of it growing there. But that's just a taster of what we're going to be looking at this morning. We're going to do a sort of hopscotch around the farm and see what's in flower because it all happens so quickly. Even towards the end of March many of these early spring flowers have finished. We drove up this little road and as we came up here, Matthew, it's called Wash Lane. Um, it's on a steep hill. It's actually missing an A at the beginning of it. It should be our wash lane because the water rushes down here and it's damp and sodden at the bottom there. And the whole bank is covered with lesser celandines and primroses. And because we're in spring, Matthew, primrose is short for prima rosa the first flowers of spring and so that's absolutely beautiful that lemon colored flower open at this time of the year first week of march is is perfect for it what about celandines what color flower do they have they're even brighter yellow uh, i think william wordsworth i've talked about this before he uh, put it in one of his poems and uh, together with some uh, early spring daffodils a very famous poem and uh, he described it as bright as the sun itself because the upper side of the petals on lesser celandines are slightly waxy and on sunny days they're all open now particularly on south facing banks north facing banks are a few days later but in bright sunshine they actually reflect the sun and almost look white because they're so waxy on the upper surface and they have to be because they've got to cope with all the vagaries that uh, spring can throw at you it's a very changeable season perhaps more so than than winter because you get lulled into some sense of security by a few mild days and then suddenly the wind whips in from the north and uh, it completely changes in a few hours so we, we can often get snow still at easter oh, which yeah. is Yes. You know, more than a month away still, yeah, isn't it? It is, yes. It's so changeable, but nature seems to be able to cope with that. And uh, so there we are. Anyway, we're going to hop back in the, the truck and just visit another portion of the farm and look at some of the spring flowers. And they have some secrets and some surprises. So come on, Gudgeon. In you get. Lovely to see these purple flowers. Right, really close to the ground, the dog violets. Dog violet, yes. Row, um Viola canina, yes. So there we are. Canina. Canine. Canine, canine yes, in the, in the Latin name. The birds are singing as well. It must be spring. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, it's, it's a delight. We've got more rain forecast, so uh, 
um, February, which we've left behind as, as being one of the wettest on record. And we've got valleys here at the farm. And uh, on five or six occasions this year, the valleys have been flooded and turned into the Lake District almost, <laughs> which amuses me. And uh, then the water permeates it. Oh, buzzard right in front of us, Matthew. Great big and wings flapping, yes. just clearing the hedge there. Yeah, just over the top of the hedge. And we've had a pair of red kite here this morning. Um, about seven o'clock this morning, just at first light, and they were courtship flying. It was a lovely sight. They were weaving round each other. Uh, beautiful birds, both of them, very mature and with that very distinctive forked tail. We're standing on one of the margins here at the farm. There's an arable field on our left with overwinter wild bird seed mix there, and uh, there's teasels on the margin, uh, some blackthorn has spread itself out you can see all these little twigs well away from the hedge which was planted in 2007 uh, that's getting going nicely and blackthorn prunus spinosa the spiny plum is noted for suckering it goes under the ground and then pops up at some distance and if this was left this would be a giant shrubbery <laughs> very quickly indeed and impenetrable so we'll keep the margin cut every third year and it's been sown with some coarse grasses a mixture of a really coarse grass called coxfoot and another one called giant fescue and every morning I walk down here and throw some seed out which you can just see on the ground there and I brought you here for a reason. Although we're looking at wildflowers, I'm easily distracted because I walked down here this morning and I thought it's a brilliant time of year to look for some of signs of our mammals as well. <laughs> and we've got a little muddy track down here and lots of deer footprints. Oh, these holes footprints? Yes, these are called slots and we've got two species because you can identify your deer by the size of the slots. Uh, occasionally we have giant ones here which are red deer and this is a monk jack deer, quite small, petite, two very distinctive little cloven hooves into the ground and there's a much larger one a little bit further yes, that's on. that's made quite a divot there hasn't and it? that's a roe deer one of our native species. Oh, the ones we saw last week. That's right yes beautiful beautiful roe deer and there's some droppings there as well from perhaps the monk jack. They almost look like rabbit droppings but that's not what caught my eye this morning because this is a time of the year I look out for signs of last year's nests and just turn round behind because I think, yes, look, look down there. Can you see anything unusual? <laughs> no, it's just a, just, just grass and <laughs> tall stems. Oh, hang on, hang <laughs> on, hang on. Yes. It looks like there's a nest of some sort. Yep, well done, About well six spotted. inches off the ground. It's a good six inches off the ground and it's the nest of one of our smallest, well, almost one of the smallest rodents in the whole world, Micromus, Micromus minutes, is the harvest mouse. And it's the time of year to find out if you've got harvest mice in your margins. And what you do, you walk along, <laughs> make sure no neighbouring farmers are watching, you look down at the ground, just 
pretend you're very depressed as a farmer, but actually you're looking for harvest moist net and you look down into the clump um, of grass and it's a clump forming grass and already there's a lot of new growth and this particular grass species here is called giant fescue. I used to do this as a child. You'd pick a leaf out, they're very coarse and there's veins all the way down the leaf and you can put your fingernail in and shred the, the um, little veins out like that and then you can peel back. Can you see? And that's what the female harvest mice does. Two sorts of nests they make, one quite close to the ground which the male and female will occupy and it's just a loose structure and then the kind of world famous nest. Uh, harvest mouse is about what five centimetres long body and the tail is almost an equal length and it's like a fifth leg it's prehensile so they can wrap their tail around these tall grass stems and hold on pull another stem towards it or if there's a wheat here on the top they can eat that but this grass shreds like this and that's why coxfoot and the giant fescoes are really important um, for their habitat they like nesting above the ground they're omnivorous they'll eat seeds fruit berries and at this time of the year, if they get hungry, <laughs> they'll eat other small rodents and cannibalistic, they'll eat each other as well if things get bad. Oh, and they look so sweet they as well. Do, they do, they do. Butter Every... wouldn't melt. No, that's right. But I used to do this as a child to show how sharp edge it is. You can get the little grass strip like that, put it between your thumbs and then <sighs> I'm trying to do it. Let's have another go, see if I can get it to work. <coughs> <coughs> Nearly. <laughs> that's how sharp it is. It's like the reed in it's a, exactly in so. a woodwind instrument. That's right, in a woodwind instrument. So there we are. So if I just part the grass, it's beautiful. The nest won't be used at this time of the year. And it's very distinctive because the female will have got the leaves and shredded them into a almost a tennis ball size nest. The hole is really always really hard to see. Don't know if we can find the hole. It's in there somewhere. If I get my little index finger in, you can just see the entrance there, quite near the top. And she will have had four, five, six babies in there. Gestation, they'll start mating in about um, uh, April onwards, certainly into May, and they can have four or five litters in a year, as many as that. And the nest is skillfully woven on it this is. taller grass, and it's sort of suspended at six inches above the ground. Yes, and that's their favourite. It's usually halfway up in a clump of grass, and in the summer months, it's nigh impossible to find them. I walk down here and look. So as the grass gets battered, and it's been hit by lots of rain, and you get sleet, occasional snow, and it, it bashes the grass down, and it exposes the nests which are kind of built through the grass stems you can see she's look the nest is completely with a, a, a one or two grass stems right through the middle of it so there we are uh, tiny territories so you can have six or seven pairs down this margin probably 40 50 square meters something like that as small as that and that is their world and that's their entire world and so we don't come on here with tractors um, occasionally it's mown once every three years so there we are it's just a lovely little site anyway we've got something we've got to get back on track now <laughs> and look at some of our spring flowers and we just go to the other side of this newly planted hedge 
and there's a new area of woodland here. Uh, it's sown with oak, field maple, some ash, hornbeam, and we're on heavy, wet, damp clay. It's a real difficult soil to work, and so there's some woodland planted here. Here is today's subject. It's pussy willow. It's one of the willow trees, and it's just coming out. You can just see the willow there. Right at the top there, yep. about um, 12, 12 feet up. And I've managed to get us a branch down so you can have a closer look. Don't worry, because if you stick this in the ground, it'll almost certainly grow. It's an amazing thing. Uh, farmers used to plant it uh, alongside rivers to help stabilise the riverbanks and uh, to stop erosion. And they'd often put stakes along to keep the cattle from going in the water. And uh, then this, the stakes would grow. So I think there's about between 13, 14 species of willow in the UK. And there's three that are called sallows. And they used to make coracles from those years and years ago um, and cover the sort of sticks that you'd make the little um, boat shape from and cover that with animal skin. And uh, so that's how uh, it, it was used. It's also, although we call it pussy willow, it's called goat willow. It's a more proper name. And farmers used to plant it and then use the foliage early on in the year to feed to goats. These buds are really furry, aren't they? I just yes. felt one. Yes, look, I'll just pull one of the twigs out here. It does feel like sort of a, tickling a cat under its chin. This is just coming into flower now. So this is everybody will groan because willow produces a huge amount of pollen, all the willow species. And uh, this one's now going bright yellow. And it has another name, although we call it pussy willow. It's also called goslings as well, one of its countryside names, because of this lovely colour. You can see it's bright, bright yellow and incredibly soft. And you can just get the the little pollen on your finger there it's bright yellow it just starts to come off now and blow about in the wind so you have male pussy willow trees and female pussy willow trees so the the, the big willows you'll often see growing by rivers 30 40 50 60 70 feet tall they're absolutely giant and they will gradually lean over the river and in flood conditions, uh, the water tries to go underneath and then you'll get hollows under the tree in the bottom of the river. And that was always a good place to fish when I was a young boy as well, along the River Tass, which runs along the west side of the farm. But there's lots of amusing stories. You can go right back in history because Neolithic people um, used willow um, to make their coracles, their little boats for, with animal skin. And then it's right back, I think it's in 1826, willows used to be used um, a little bit thicker than these, probably about that thickness, about two inch thick on the trunks, and that would be split down the middle, and you'd pay your taxes to the government with willow, and they were called tallies. And uh, so you'd have, the, the willow would be split into two, and you'd each have a copy of it. So one copy would go to the government, you'd keep the other copy almost like a receipt. And in 1826, uh, a new system of paying your taxes was invented, and all the old tallies which were kept at the Houses of Parliament in London, they were fed into the boiler <laughs> at the Houses of Parliament. You're going to have to smile at this. And the boiler overheated because they were 
tens of thousands of these tallies and it set fire to the House of Commons and completely burnt it down. And it does make me smile. So, I mean, yes, historically, that's uh, almost 200 years ago. Yes. And the, the building we see now in Westminster with Big Ben, and yes. that was a, a Victorian yes. rebuild, yes, wasn't it? Yes, it? it certainly was. Because originally was, it was a medieval palace. That's right, and it was caused by this creature here, this <laughs> tree in front of us. <laughs> I tell you, the flies love it. There's all these little winter flies. Yes. They're moths and or tiny moths here in the evening. So the sallow here, the pussy willow, is pollinated by moths at night time. And these little gnats, which are called winter gnats, they're flying. And that's a really good sign. We're standing in the lee side. There's a slight southwesterly breeze this morning. It's quite mild, a little bit of drizzle in the air. And it's perfect sort of pollinating weather for our early um, insects and uh, some of those flowers that we've already looked at. So absolutely stunning. So there we are. Now, something interests you as well, because I mentioned willows. And the two main willows in the UK are the white willow and the crack willow, but they hybridise together. And when they do that, it's called cricket bat willow. <laughs> and we think cricket bat willow was first discovered in Suffolk. And I have some relations down in Suffolk which make the cricket bats from the cricket bat willow. They're a family called the Watts. My father's sister married one of them and uh, they, they became quite famous. I don't know if they still make cricket bats today, but a decent cricket bat willow, you can get 25 to 30 bat um, blanks out of it and then it's carried on and made. But it's quite flexible wood. Um, so the crack willow is very brittle. The white willow is kind of flexible and the two, when they're hybridised, produces exactly the right wood for your cricket bats. I know you're <laughs> smiling. I thought I'd bring that in. Well, all cricket bats in the world, um, apart from very cheap ones that aren't used in proper games, all cricket bats are English willow. Yes, exactly that. And this the hybrid from the two largest species of willow. As I said, it's the white willow and the crack willow, and they will breed together and give you the cricket bat willow. Very fast growing and very, very flexible wood as well. So we're just walking out into the field now. We'll leave the willow behind us. Now you've talked about tracks. I can yeah. see tracks everywhere. Yes, once you see that, these are deer tracks, and they go off every which way, and the deer like using the same track over and over again. If they've used it once, they follow the trail that they've made previously because it's always a safe route and they learn when it goes through a hedge where you can go through the hedge quickly and escape any predators so always really useful and it's a good time of year after lots of rain or snow to find out what you've got out and about you can be your own nature detective which uh, makes life very interesting seems an awful long time since i came here for a snow visit Yes, I know. Uh, I've still got the snowplow at the farm and we get it all ready each uh, late autumn uh, for the snow season. That's and increasing. I do some of the routes inside Norwich and in the past I've cleared County Hall car park, which you have to learn where all the curbs are. And all the councillors' cars. Yes, <laughs> you have to dodge around them. Yes, and uh, that was police headquarters back then. Right, we've walked way out in the field and... Uh, I've got a little tiny flower here, which was a huge problem for farmers. 
way back, um, uh, getting on for a hundred years ago. It's a member of the cabbage family and at this time of the year it starts to come into flower and it's got a lovely name, it's called Charlock, C-H-A-R-L-O-C-K. And it's this little yellow yes, flower. Yes, and it's a crucifer. So it's all the same family as kale, cabbage, broccoli uh, and lots of them. And you can tell crucifers because they have the flowers in the shape of a cross, a crucifix. So there's always four petals and that's what's there. And it's bright yellow and it's the first one has just come into flower. It's on heavy clay soil here and uh, it loves that. And the plants can go up to two, three feet tall at least. So... Um, that's always a surprise and uh, it was such a problem that a company uh, now it's now and still called Boots developed hormone weed killers in the 1940s and early 1950s and they developed one uh, called MCPA that's its abbreviation it's got a long chemical name and it is absolutely deadly so although it's such a common weed farmers using MCPA in the 1960s and 70s virtually eliminated this weed you could almost take the lid off a can of MCPA on one side of the field not spray the field and the vapour was so deadly <laughs> both for tomatoes and for this weed charlock that it would actually curl this weed up although it hadn't actually been sprayed so it's quite nasty stuff it, it, it certainly is still used today but it's deadly to this family of crucifers and i can just see here and it's some of the little blue flowers the speedwell flowers only an inch tall look it's called bird's eye speedwell tiny bloom on and that just tiny about an eighth of an inch across this this charlock though is is there in the middle of this field and I can't see any other examples here. So it's quite a lone. No, no, I, there's you have there's to a few walk more. about, but there's lots of plants. Uh, I've been trained, um, sort of, to recognise wildflowers, but not to enjoy them, uh, uh, to actually identify them in growing crops to kill them. I mean, this is it's embarrassing for me. So I'm trained to look for the seedlings because that's when you actually control weeds before they become too competitive with the crop. Farmers used to say you can't grow two crops in, uh, in one. You've either got to grow the crop or, or the weeds. And if I walk about, I can find you juvenile um, emerging. There's one, and it's not in flower yet. Look, one there. That's one char there. Charlock. That's Charlock, yes. And it's got a very peppery taste, so it produces shiny black seeds. And if you do allow it to seed in your crop, it can, uh, the seed can last eight, ten years quite comfortably in the soil. Poppy, obviously, even longer. It produces thousands of seeds, poppies do, and uh, that will last for, for probably a century or more. So here's some more charlock. Look, it is dotted all over the field together with lots of other, other plants as well. So diminutive little plants, but we'll come back perhaps in four weeks time and this will look like a field of rape in flower bright bright yellow so there we are so a little taster of some of them lovely plants out on the farm we'll go back to the farm now the drizzle just set, setting in but i've got one more little surprise a real secret and we'll visit that on the way back to the farm
This is the woodland that we often visit on these occasions. I can see lots of squirrels. Uh, this is Fox's Grove. Yes, well done, Matthew. Uh, we're being accompanied by a jet aircraft at the moment, way up above us, and I'm just looking up in the canopy of the trees, seeing lots of blue tits, great tits flying about, and uh, there's some dense shrubbery in front of us. It's laurel and box hedging, which goes right through the farm, but we've got to get through this to the other side. I promised you a, a spring delight, so just going to have to get through some of the undergrowth. Can't be bluebells yet, surely? No. Or not blooming ones, anyway. You are impatient. <laughs> there we go. Through this laurel. Yes, very Prop shaded here. Yes. Uh, Typical, good place for birds to roost. Look, lots of droppings on the ground. The whole ground is plastered with droppings. Here we are. Well to walk. <laughs> oh, look at that. This is breathtaking. The whole hillside is bluebells and dotted in all through this woodland are remnants of what was here years ago, wild daffodils. These are the ones William Wordsworth talked about. Uh, they will grow on damp soil in woodland and they are beautiful. So lint lilies, they're also called. These are lovely little miniature daffodils, yes, aren't they? Yes, they've been copied and uh, there are new garden varieties. I think one's called Teate, which is French for head-to-head -head kind of thing. Tiny little ones. And these are proper wild daffodils. They've been here, so I know they've been here since I was used to come in here with my mum at five or six years old. So that takes us back 70 years and there's even more on the other side of the hill there that growing on this very rich woodland soil. They grow from bulbs, they flower now, lots of twigs drop down right on top of them, I'll just clear those off, and they are beautiful. This clump's probably got nearly 50 blooms on, probably. A long, dark yellow trumpet, and the petals folded well back. Um, and so lots of bulbs there, more to come into flower as well. So that will produce perhaps 60 to 70 blooms and they spread really well. They love this soil, another big clump over there and okay. one right behind you as well. So really, really beautiful and quite scarce now, real proper wild daffodils. So most of the ones we see, if I'm out in the car, I see lots of daffodils on the verges, but they've probably been planted, have they? Yes, th those are, and they certainly wouldn't really be like this. They'll be the modern Narcissus varieties. And larger. And much larger, and you can even have double ones, and uh, they don't do the business for me because you get uh, one of these northerly winds and uh, the flower heads are so heavy they just brackle over and look very very sorry for themselves and these are stout little fellows they come here every year come back into flower lots of bulbs if you did dig this clump up they'd probably be 60 to 70 bulbs not they don't all flower each bulb every year but just look at the foliage in there only about eight to ten inches tall more blooms to come 
there. Look, that one's got to open up. So they're also called Lent lilies and they used to be picked. And in certain parts of the country, you tourists would actually come and, and just view them where they are prolific, particularly up in the Midlands and Yorkshire, up there. Um, and they're very, very common there. The Lent lily. So we're in Lent now. Yes, yes, we are, yes. Have you uh, given anything up? No, I haven't. No, no. <laughs> That's a sore point. What, what do I give up? <laughs> oh, dear. So, yes. Well, that's to suppose that you had any sinful things in the first no, place. No, I can't think of any off the top of my <laughs> head. Just enjoying wildflowers like this, that's that's enough. I couldn't give them up, and I, I live to see them every year. It's absolutely beautiful. So, there we are. Right, Matthew, we need to get back to the farm and answer some listeners' questions now. Is it going to be warm in there? I hope so. We might even make you a cup of tea. feet as we come into the inner sanctum of the farm here, the farm office. Yes, excellent. Take, take the feet off our weight and uh, we've got a pile of questions here, haven't we? Yes. Uh, it's, it's, it's wonderful to receive everyone's uh, emails and letters and we'll give an email address out at the end of this week's podcast. Lots of people enjoying the podcast, which is wonderful to read. Uh, Rachel in South Norfolk says, I have a question. Chris has spoken fondly, sharing his affection and knowledge of the River Taz. I live within a mile of it and even have a tributary flowing past my home, which has been a bit lively recently. I'd be really interested to learn where it originates and where it flows to. Oh, excellent. Well, I know the River Tass like the, the back of my hand, Matthew, and it arises. Some people think it, it, the source is Taysborough, but it isn't. It's much further south. It's somewhere called Carlton Fen, and um, it's really wet. It's quite a low area. And it's getting sort of close to Bannham uh, in that area of South Norfolk. And um, it's a really interesting area because there's two or three springs rising in quite a small area. And that's called Carlton Fen. And it's got a specific name just there. And it's called Rot Hole. <laughs> Only Norfolk could have a name like that. And uh, the springs rise up, and that's the exact source of the River Tass, which then flows roughly northeastwards to start with, and then almost due north and goes up towards Norwich. And that rot hole is a really interesting name because quite close to Carlton Fen is a farm, and it's called Flaxfields Farm. And years ago, the flax used to be harvested, the seed could be taken off, and of course you get linseed oil and linoleum for, from it as well, and the flax had to be rotted, or retted, and there is a word in the dictionary called R-E-T, and you can look it up, and it is actually to rot uh, flax stems or... Um, uh, various other plants as well with lots of woody fibres. Nettles could be rotted as well in these old rot holes or retting pits. And there's a very large retting pit a little bit further 
north on close to the River Tassa, Renningham, and that's where the flax used to be rotted. So I'm wondering if rot hole, <laughs> where the tass actually rises, comes from an old rotting hole for... Um, for the flax plants. So it then travels northwards to Norwich. Roughly speaking, the river goes for about 20 miles and it joins the River Yare at Trose. But that's not exactly true because I've discovered something in my fishing days that where the Norwich to London railway line is, it goes to Liverpool Street, and there's a very large sort of pipe about four to five feet diameter that goes under the railway line that actually joins up with the river Yare before its natural confluence down in Tros. So there we are, that's the best I can do. I think that's a very good answer. Uh, Jill Larkham is sending you an SOS. Her local supermarket, a co-op in Tattershall in Lincolnshire, always in the past had house martins nesting in the summer, but she reports... The shop now has netting up on the front, so they have nowhere to nest. Yes, right. So I've been straight on to this one, and I've talked to the store manager at Tattershall, um, at the co-op there, and her name is Tina Folson, and uh, I've written to her, and we've had a long discussion, and she's quite agreeable, but she doesn't have the say-so in order to get the netting taken down. So uh, we've sent an email to head office at Co-op, and with fingers crossed, we'll have a positive result. And the same thing happened at the local Tesco store at Harford Bridges, and we managed to... We now have a brilliant relationship with the manager there, and we've put up some swallow nest boxes there, and house martins are back nesting at the store. So fingers crossed, I've sent this off. This is a copy of the email that I've sent that I've kept, and Daniel's printed it all out, and uh, fingers crossed. <laughs> Absolutely. David, David Evans-Jones lives near Norwich at Thorpe St Andrew, and he's noticed the bat-crossing structures built across the main Norwich to London road, uh, the A11, and uh, also there's new roads being built around Norwich which will also have these bat crossings he says do they work are they actually used by bats are bats not capable of flying over roads anyway this is a contentious one because uh, the bat crossings themselves are quite expensive to construct and generally it will join two pieces of woodland or two large hedgerows when you, the new road goes through uh, but in comparison to the cost of the road the bat crossing is a minimal minimal cost but there's limited evidence that bats are actually using them uh, the only good way of finding out for certain is to have a bat detector one of these little um, microchips on the bat back of a bat and see if they're actually using it and so it is really difficult to find out um, and of course it's quite contentious because the northern distributor road is going across the river Wensum if it goes ahead and that's a, quite a rare bat colony there which we're really concerned about and the Norfolk Wildlife Trust is working in conjunction with the highways uh, to try and find solutions that will protect the bats into the future so it's a really difficult Difficult question to answer accurately. Bats are just, they, they live their own life and uh, there's been no real evidence of bats being killed going across roads. They fly quickly, and uh, but they're not quick enough to get out of the way of a 70 mile an hour vehicle. 
Jeff Tucker has sent a note saying he remembers previously you did an episode about water fleas helping clearing algae from a horse trough. He also remembers about a decade ago someone uh, was uh, conducting experiments with water fleas together with barley straw to get rid of algae on one of the lakes in the broads. Uh, They'd rigged up a small enclosure in the lake to try it out. Wonder if you've ever heard of this, and if so, maybe you know what the conclusions were. Yes, the conclusions are that in small areas of water, if you can get a bale of barley straw, barley in particular, oat straw is almost as effective. It does work to clear the algae out. Uh, You can have an algal bloom if the water's got a source of nutrients coming into it, like a sewage outfall or something like that. Um, The water's too rich. Then you get an algal bloom, and uh, if the water fleas aren't there to actually consume the algae, uh, then you'll have a build-up. So on the farm, we have various water tanks. They're quite large. They're over a 1,000 gallons, and the farm duck pond also has Daphnia and Cyclops in. Cyclops are one-eyed, tiny little, uh, about a twelfth of an inch diameter, uh, little tiny bodies with one eye at the top, and they actually feed on the algae. And if, as long as you're not too far away, you can come to Hyash Farm during late May and early June and I can provide you with as many um, little Cyclops and Daphnia as you require. And they are then the right species that you need. Uh, the barley straw is a bit questionable because we don't know if it's the chemicals left in the straw that have been sprayed on as a fungicide early that actually helps to control the algae or whether it's the cellulose content in the straw itself which dissolves into the water. So the jury's out on that one. Julian Lawrence uh, from Halesworth. Julian writes uh, about seeing an adder. And here's a photograph of what he saw. He was... um... On Minsmere, the nature reserve on the Suffolk coast, uh, on a sunny day, and he saw lots of chiff chaffs and a swallow quite so early. That's amazing, isn't it? But there's the picture of the adder, and oh, he's a lovely example, isn't he? Yes, absolutely perfect. Occasionally we have them at High Ash Farm. My favourite place to see them is on Winterton SSSI, on the sand dunes there. From about mid-March onwards, on warm sunny days, they'll come out of hibernation and they need to sun themselves, all coiled up like a piece of rope to get warmed up, to become active. Beautiful, beautiful beautiful creatures love to see them and they've got that typical zigzag stripe all the way down the back whereas a grass snake has a kind of yellow collar just uh, uh, behind the head and you can distinguish the two like that but adders are quite rare now you're really lucky to see those and as for the first swallows um, there's been evidence this winter that swallows have kept in the UK, particularly right on the south coast. And that might be an indication of our climate changing more than we had anticipated. And we've been out this morning and you've got plastered with gnats flying. And of course, that's the fodder for our visiting house martins, swallows and house martins, sand martins I should say, which will all be arriving. They'll all have set off from different parts of Africa and they'll be heading up to Norfolk as we speak. 
Heather Moss found a, a beautiful female kestrel at the base of a tree, so thin and soaking wet from the rain. Sadly, by the time we got to the local rescue centre, she'd passed away. The rescue centre has seen and heard many buzzards, kestrels, sparrowhawks, owls, etc. They're turning up in this condition. Uh, what else have we got here? Uh, Kathleen. Hello, Kathleen. Uh, we headed off to look for the snowdrops at Dunnage. Truly awesome. And here's a lovely one as well from Tina, Tina James, who loves listening to Chris Skinner's podcast and has been since last September. And uh, my partner, as a wonderful surprise, a Valentine gift this year, we had a trip to Norwich for a few days, especially to come to the farm and to take a walk along the surrounding footpaths. And I'm so thrilled, says Kathleen, and can't wait to visit. Ah, so that's all booked in. Yes, it's booked in, yes. So well, we're, we're looking forward to meeting and greeting you. If you turn up at the farm, I'll uh, show you a few more surprises. Tina, all the way from Leicester. Yes, I know, yes. And somebody has made me laugh listening to the podcast late at night, sends her off to sleep, and she has to listen again the next morning. I, I did find that amusing, yes. <laughs> well... Uh... You certainly haven't sent me off to sleep this morning. I've enjoyed every minute. And Chris, I can't wait for next week. Excellent. Well, look forward to seeing you again for yet another Countryside podcast. This is a Soundyard production. Music is by Tom Harris. Hello, it's Anna here from Soundyard with some wonderful news. Chris Skinner's Countryside podcast is as popular as ever and we've almost reached a whopping 100,000 downloads. So thank you for your support and wonderful emails, letters and voicemails that we get telling us how much that you're enjoying it. It's a highlight of our week. If you find you'd like to support the podcast, then you can. You can head to our DonorBox page. It's donorbox.org forward slash countryside podcast. Or we're able to accept cheques as well, made payable to Soundyard CIC and posted to 132 Magdalen Street, Norwich, NR3 1JD. All of these donations go towards paying for our CD service that we provide for people without the internet.